Welcome to the Richard Roper Show. I am indeed Richard Roper. Thanks to everybody who's been downloading, subscribing, sharing the podcast. Uh, over the last few months, we have charted in the United States of America, in Romania, in Croatia, and in Hong Kong. And I don't know why, but I'm not going to question why we have listeners all across the globe, and including in those uh, three great locales. A lot of great stuff to get to today. In a couple of seconds, we're going to be talking to my good friend, Neil Steinberg, who's got a new book out every goddamn day. That doesn't mean he's got a new book out every goddamn day. That's the name of the book. And we're also going to be uh, giving you some reviews of new streaming titles and movies that are coming your way or currently out there right now. But first, I want to remind you, The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success, because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. In light of the events of the last 12 months, perhaps I have more to reflect on than most. The royal family is in genuine crisis. Have royal scandals damaged the country's reputation? The House of Windsor should be binding the nation together, setting an example of idealized family life. It's a situation that cannot help but affect the stability of the country. That is a clip from The Crown season five, which is making its debut on Netflix. And they do that thing where they dump all 10 episodes at you so you can binge it. And the, the Crown is now picking up uh, the Princess Diana story. Uh, lots of great stuff. A whole new cast. We're going to have a review of The Crown and a bunch of other stuff in the second half of The Richard Rover Show. But first, I want to bring in my friend, Neil Steinberg, my Sun-Times colleague, my good friend. Neil's been with the Sun-Times. Neil, I'm just going to bring you in on this introduction so you can help me with it. Is that all right okay, with you? Sure, I'll fill in the details. Yeah, uh, 35 you, years on staff. Yeah, you and I started right around the same time yeah. in, in yep. the 1980s. Uh, as I recall, Neil, it was the time where they had just they built the smoking room. You couldn't smoke in the whole newsroom, but you could still smoke. And uh, there was a I, I'll do a quick well, might as well digress because I know we're going to do this anyway. There was a, a wonderful woman, uh, Jane Gregory, who was literally yes. carted out of the smoking room. Right. Yes. I mean, we fell over dead. God bless her soul. Um I was thinking more of Bill Braden. You know, he he was uh, from the era where you would drop your butt and crush it out on the, the linoleum floor. And I remember, you know, he just as if that was like the end of the world, not being able to smoke in the newsroom. What was the, what was life coming to? Yeah, when you and I started, I mean, they did have ATEX computers and and you know ways. Of, you know, the uh, Radio Shack uh, TRS eighty laptop, if yep. you were going on the road and doing your stories. But yeah, there was still a lot of the last remnants of the old uh, old newsroom, including some of the reporters who were still yeah, there. Yeah, people. Well, Bob Katalik, if you recall, the the head, the head of photography when he joined, there was a carrier pigeon system used to get film from like Soldier Field quickly back to the paper to make their 10 editions a day or whatever. So yeah, we, we're just one derivation away from, you know, hot yeah. wax and. Yeah, we did. We had one that. foot, we kind of had one foot in the twenties and then one foot, you know, in the 20th and the 21st century. So Neil's been with the Sun-Times for 35 years. 
writes one of the great columns of all time. And how many books have you done now, Neil? This is number nine, which is uh, either highly embarrassing or something I should be proud of. I mean, you know, you, I happen to like them. Well, you've written a bunch of books, Richard. You know, it's funny. I was at a party once with Steve Huntley. I'm sure you remember him. A kind great of a editor. Southern sure. gentleman. And he said, Neil, what, what's the difference between writing for a newspaper and writing books? And I took a long sip of my drink. I said, well, you know, Steve, on a windy day, you don't look out the window and see a bunch of books swirling around in the street. Um which and I wonder why people hated me, but uh, uh, I mean, book you know, as you get to work on them a bit. I mean, this book every goddamn day was a request. The, the University of Chicago Press said, "Hey, could you do a book of Chicago history, kind of like your blog?" You know, I have a blog every goddamn day where I, true to its name, file every single day, and uh, so this was sort of a challenge because I had to key each vignette to the date. Um, which was both very hard and very liberating. And I learned all this stuff that I never would have known if I wasn't looking for something that happened on January 3rd in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, it really is a, a, a classic Steinberg-esque uh, approach, beautiful writing and, and great anecdotes, but it's an on this day in Chicago history thing. And, you know, Neil, I, I was thinking of my father who passed away a few years ago, and I think you might remember you guys had the same, you have the same birthday, June 10th. So I always think of you on his birthday and my, I'm like, oh my God, my dad would have loved this book, but I'm still getting a bunch for uh, friends and relatives. It's going to be an awesome uh, holiday present. It seems to be like the Kudiet Christmas gift. I hear that a lot, and people like to sort of either they they read it two ways. They 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 look for special dates, or they go through day by day, which takes a lot of restraint, or they just plunge in, and then it's like eating bag after bag of potato chips because it's sort of history with a dull part left out. Because each vignette is sort of to the point, something significant, usually often important. I mean, you know, I didn't just sort of grab each individual that had sort of overriding premise. You know, what's Chicago about? What makes us significant? Well, there's labor and race and technology and sports and literature and, you know, all sorts of things. And then, of course, I had certain dates I had to fill the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, yeah, yeah. Chicago Fire and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, did you find that certain dates had like five important things that happened on them through the years and you had to just pick one? Well, there, there, there happened a couple of times. The, the one that I talk about most, because uh, trying to fit, I mean, it's better to be lucky than good. I'm sure I've told you that before. Hmm. And in trying to make things fit, it also sort of changed the story and made them better. And I'll, I'll give you an example. August 15th, there were two events that I just loved. One of them was August 15th, 1967, the unveiling of the Picasso sculpture, yeah, Daily yeah. Plaza, which I love for this shock of the new. And there's studs circle in the audience with a microphone and Mike Royko. And it just was this wonderful moment in Chicago history. And the other was the uh, Battle of Fort Dearborn, what, what people used to call the Fort Dearborn Massacre, mm. uh, which is you know this pivotal moment um, where you couldn't change the unveiling of the Picasso. That happened on one day. But with the Fort Battle of Fort Dearborn, you could dial the story back to the 14th and on the 14th mm. chief partridge shows up and he hands captain heard back his friendship medal and says basically i can't keep this because we're all gonna kill you tomorrow and it 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 turns into you know it, it changes the the direction of the narrative and it makes you focus on the betrayal you know they thought they had this agreement of of giving the indians guns and booze and things that they turn their back on and so it, it it makes it more of a story more of a contemporary story you know, it used to be the fort dearborn massacre and these 
innocent uh, settlers, et cetera, left the fort and were killed by savages. And, you know, we don't view it that way anymore. You, history is viewed where all the parties sort of have integrity. And by moving the story a day earlier, we sort of ask well, what was going on with the Native Americans? Why did this happen? Which, as you know, is, is sort of a better question for me. So in, yeah, in trying yeah. to make everything fit, I, I made them better stories often. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to uh, throw out some dates. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to, to remember exactly what you wrote because I'll, I'll set you up with these, Neil. Okay. But I, I picked some that, uh, well, of course, I skewed a little bit towards some of the pop culture things. And I learned some stuff, which is, you know, incredible about some of the some of the origins of certain things and also just some that I remember. So I want to start with uh, January 27th, 1967, the blizzard of 67. Can you tell us about that? Well, that, you know, when you have something which is just a story that's going on everywhere and one that's familiar, you have to sort of frame it. And so, you know, God bless the Daily News is sometimes a tribute and they're all online from that day. And looking over it, I was struck by how many babies were born because, mm. you know, there's still and, and the hot, you know, medical, you know, everyone was snowbound. And, and so I, I remember my entry, my opening for that is something like babies don't know from snow. Right. And I right. could have used the babies being born that day as a guide to just how disrupted things were. And you see mm. doctors on snowmobiles and patients on bobsleds and things. And so, you know, but the the, the famous stories were much more difficult, much more challenged than the unknown ones, because you know, nobody wants to just usually on this on this date, you know, on this date was the loop flood or yeah. something. And they stop. And so to me, you know, I want to write a book that people are going to want to read. And so I had to find a way to take this great Chicago blizzard, which everyone who was alive then remembers, mm -hmm. tell it in a way that's going to be a little fresh, a little fun. And, and how can you not care about babies being born in a snowdrift? Well, yeah. And you do a great job of that now that because that's one of my I want to say earliest memories because I was in second grade. So I obviously had childhood memories, but like one of those really visceral memories I have, Neil, because I went to St. Jude the Apostle, okay, with a Catholic mm -hmm. grammar school in South Holland, the south suburb of Chicago, for those of you listening in Romania and Croatia and uh, elsewhere. Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong. And, you know, midway through the day, they decided that, you know, they were going to close the school. And back then, of course, folks know, you know, you'd get school closings listed on radio and TV, but that was about it. But what I remember most, Neil, was like, they just sent us home. It was a big grammar school, like eight grades, probably 400 to 500 students, right? I'm seven years old. You know, my brother's in, in, in like sixth grade. My sister's like in eighth grade. We, 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 we can't even find you. And, I'll just, and I, I live like, you know, four blocks maybe from, from the grammar school. I lived on Maryland Avenue in Dalton, which was right next door to South Holland. And all I remember is, you know, I had my snowsuit on and they just sent us home. And I just It was a different walking. world back then, Rich, you well, know, like jarts you know, and go-karts and things. I, like, I, yeah. I think we still might have lost a couple of kids, a couple of Mary Pats and, and Johns and Josephs because like I remember just walking home and about halfway home, the, the snow was like up to my chest. I was like the kid in a Christmas story. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it, you know, and then you just got yeah. home and you thought out and mom made chicken noodle soup and dad got home from, you know, from work and we just went about our day. So that, but, but that's what I remember getting stuck and seeing my house and wondering at the age of seven on my own, you know, like I'm all of a sudden I'm Sir Edmund Hillary. Well, that's what I tried to do with a lot of these stories to sort of tell them in a way that kind of made you feel like, like just what you said, made them more personal. Uh, like, you know, another cat, I was thinking of Our Lady of the Angels, you know, a very famous, horrible fire. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. And I really tried to tell it in a way that you sort of, you know, you choke, you, you, you see what's going on in front of you and you see the horror of it. 
Um, I mean, you know, you know, a lot of some of these are light, some of these are really deep, and and I tried to sort of give it that you are there feeling that that you just expressed. Well, you always have done that with your writing. You take us right there, and that brings me to March twenty first, two thousand. And your lead for this entry, Neil. By the way, we're talking to Neil Steinberg every goddamn day. It's available everywhere, right, Neil? You can go on the Amazon yes, and all stores, that. Bookstores, kind of Amazon, University of Chicago Press. Atlas Stationer has 30 signed copies on Lake Street. So if you go to the oh, Atlas cool. Station's website, they will mail it to you in Croatia, I'm sure, if you pay them enough. <laughs> That's awesome. So March 21st, 2000, your lead is only about 50 supporters show up at the Ramada Inn at 49th and Lakeshore Drive. Why would they? Nobody wants to hang around with a loser who's the loser neil the loser is barack obama and uh you know i love telling that story it's the only election he ever lost and i just you had this sort of grim image of the ramada Inn with nobody there and also you know of of the criticism he got you know bobby rush i'm trying to remember said you know he that harvard made him a fool and someone called him you know that basically he was white and 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 just the sort of you know this disaster he ran against bobby rush with name recognition and and you know, and, and and he wasn't a very good candidate. I mean, he was he was flinty and boring. Remember, he was a college professor, and so you know, it's sort of, again. I picked that moment because I had the date. I, I don't want you to, you know, I think I just put in a negative thing. There's also a scene where Michelle Obama and her daughters are going to that great rally in Grant Park. So you know, you get to see little flashes of people. Uh, but but that is where he lost his one and only uh, election, and you just sort of see the you know, that him learning, uh, he, he learned yeah. how to be a candidate from that. He lost 61 to 30%, as you mentioned. Yeah, there. he was a, crushed. A margin, yeah. Bobby Rush's son, I believe, was killed in a botched robbery. So as, as if he wasn't going to win enough, there was this uh, sympathy yeah. factor as well, where, where people, you know, Bobby Rush is a former Black Panther, and, you know, think what you will of him, He, he his, his uh, district loves him. You know, it's interesting, because uh, when I was reading your entry, I was thinking, the next morning, I had arranged to have breakfast with Bobby Rush because I knew he was going to win, but I just wanted to sit down and talk to him. You know, And what I remember, see, this is the kind of Steinberg-esque thing that, that you would love. What I remember, Neil, from the conversation was I asked him if he had kept any of his Black Panther memorabilia. Uh-huh. Like, and he said, oh, gosh, because I think I got some in a box somewhere in a garage, just like someone that played baseball or anything else. And he goes, that's a good question. I don't know if I got any. I got a couple of pictures, but I don't know if I have anything else. It's always amazing. I, I don't know if you were there the day that Ernie Banks came into the paper, but he, he came in and said, you know, I don't have any pictures of myself. Can you give me some pictures? And they took him back Crazy. into the photo department and printed some stuff up. So, yeah, a lot of people, you know, you, you, they're so busy being famous, they forget to save things. And for folks who are listening to this podcast in November, uh, Neil and I are actually recording this on November 4th, which is the 14th anniversary of the 2008 election, Neil, uh, which is incredible because when you read your entry here, March 21st, 2000, unknown Barack Obama gets crushed. And within eight years, he's the president elected of the United States of America. That's the that day is the only time I appear in the book. You know, I I didn't want to stick myself in or my loved one although although for the the blizzard my, my wife's father is is the one who built that igloo there's a middle-aged man who who sort of reaches down and touches the street in front of the hilton and says it was right here where the the marchers mm. got beaten and and that's me because i i went down with my son uh, uh. you know if, if you recall we weren't sure he was going to win and we were worried about violence and I wasn't going to stick around for that. But my then, whatever he was, 13-year-old son said, well, I want to go. Mm. Everyone wants to show off for their kid. And so I went down to Grand Park just to take him. 
An incredible, you know, setting too, because of course, Grand Park, you know, 40, we're going back and forth on the timeline, but if you go 40 years prior to 1968 and the Democratic Convention, you know, what a completely different scene. Because as you mentioned, the Grand Park, it was incredible. Again, and again, regardless of politics, but it was history, you know, and to see literally hundreds of thousands of people. And then there was this impromptu kind of march, of, but a march of celebration. People were dancing Michigan in the Avenue. street. Literally, yeah. drums and dancing. You know, it was a wonderful time to be a Chicago. And I, I like to think people from other parties felt that. But if they didn't, tough, their moment would come. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, as you know, Rich, I'm generally a humorist. I'm not, I'm not someone who takes a bleak view of life. And so I, I don't, I didn't celebrate the city in the sense Emmett Till is in this and a lot of bleak moments are mm -hmm. in this. But mm -hmm. generally, I think it's good to be alive and it's good to be alive in Chicago. And I, I hope the book reflects that. Absolutely, it does. It is a celebration. And yeah, and as always, you point out, you know, warts and all, you know, the, the history of Chicago is rich with, you know, both the most incredible triumphs of mankind, humankind, and some of the biggest tragedies. I was shocked with all the technology, like, you know, not yeah, only like yeah. the cell phones and, and, and the remote control, Adam, but also, yeah, the videotape. I mean, that videotape is a great moment where they show off this $40,000 Ampex machine in 1956. Because you know, before then, they had kinescopes. You had to bolt a film camera to a TV set, right. and you knew it was reproduction. And after that, it just kicked open this world. And we we pioneered radio. We pioneered television. Although I'm really proud. If you look at it, I think it's December 2nd. If you if you look at the splitting the atom, I mean, people know the that Fermi story fairly well, you know, under mm -hmm. the at Stag Field. Um, but I asked two questions that I had not seen asked that I was really proud of. And, and one question was, what did they do? When you split the atom, what do you do? And so I had them, you know, piling the, the uranium ore and slipping in these control rods and blah, blah, blah. And the other question I asked was, why did they do it there? Here you're doing some some dangerous atomic experiment that that Niels Bohr is afraid is going to set the atmosphere on fire, and you're doing it in the middle of a college campus in the middle of the you know the second largest city in the country. Yeah, yeah but Neil, they were under the bleachers, so you know it's the duck. I guess cover everything. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that, I, yeah. I, I mean, this was a way for me. I mean, I try to have fun with my books and the writing of them. I mean, it's funny. I had a line I liked. I said, I said, publicate the actual publication is the punishment for the joy of writing the book. <laughs> so I got a chance to, to to address things that I was always curious about or to, you know, sort of sort of dig deeper into things that just sat in my perception or to learn about things I didn't know at all. Again, I'm, I'm trying to find a certain date and I go, oh, on this date, the three Cezannes that the uh, Art Institute stuck in a closet in 1978 were discovered missing and they were gone for months while the Art Institute tried to figure out what happened to them. Yeah, I, like, I was here it. in 1978, but I don't remember that. I don't. Yeah. And that's like the stuff of a Netflix documentary. Right. I mean, uh, crazy. So, stuff. so many of the stuff, uh, the, the one that I, I think I could uh, uh, several of these, I could write a book just about the vignette. And there's one of, about a woman named Beatrice Tonneson, who was who started studio photography. And so she had she was a woman who had a photo studio in 1897 on Michigan Avenue. Mm. And she would pull people off the street and take them back to her studio and like pose them with products. And people were dumbfounded that, that this would be used in advertising. And it, and it really was. She was a very unconventional, very beautiful woman. Um, and, and I was just there's a number of people that I didn't know existed before I started this book that I became entranced with. And she was one of them. Amazing stuff. Now, of course, uh, I'm normally talking mostly about, you know, movies and streaming and pop culture. So I, I had to bring up this one, Neil. September 3rd, 1979, Daily Plaza, 
all of a sudden is swarmed with uh, National Guardsmen, fire trucks, police cars. All this is going on. Sherman tanks on the ground. Why are, why are all these things happening at Daly Plaza on September 3rd, 1979? They're shooting the Blues Brothers. And actually, I originally had two Blues Brothers vignettes, but because one, they, they go, uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd go to ask Jane Byrne to, 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 to give them permission. But, you know, for one movie, you don't want to have two vignettes. So I had to get rid of one. But that was very important because, you know, under Dad Daly, uh, they wouldn't he wouldn't allow movies uh, to be shot in Chicago because he thought they made them made it look like there was crime here. And, you know, during 68, they made things look bad. And so and so, the you know, Jane Byrne was this wonderful opening up where she went, you know, she was a party gal. She just liked having Hollywood people here. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, there's a number, a number of films. There's one I really worked hard on, which I didn't realize until I started the book, that one of the first movies ever made by one of those cameramen for the Lumiere brothers, mm-hmm. uh, I want to say in 1896, was shot here of Policeman on Parade. You might have seen that. Yeah. And I, I, I spent a lot of time in the Newberry, and I just could not find what day that happened. And there are several things that I lost because, you know, the, the purpose of this book is it has to, you know. Yeah, you didn't want to say on or around mid-October. Right. You know? I mean, some I cheated. Like, I, I wanted to find the date that Montgomery Ward issued his famous catalog in August of 1872, and I just couldn't do it. So, I, But I couldn't ignore Montgomery Ward because he was so hugely important, like the, the Amazon of the 19th century. And so I, I used uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, who was a Ward creation. And then in talking about that, I can tuck Ward in like later in the story. So I, I do, did have a number of cheats that I would use I wanted to include house music, which came in Chicago, and I spent probably more time than I spent doing anything else trying to find out when the warehouse opened in March 1977. And you know, I talked to the owner. I talk, I just couldn't do it, mm. and so I, I used the first house record, which was also produced here as as a cheat. But to get into that, yeah, yeah. I'm going to close on this one, Neil. December 16th, 1959. Former Chinese Laundry, Wong Cleaners and Dryers at 1842 North Wells is now the home of. Second City. It was amazing that they were all like, you know, they had all done different compass players and things and and they were getting approaching 30. And this was sort of their come to Jesus moment where they thought we got to we got to be successful here. And they did. Um, But that, you know, it didn't have to become what it did, but it really, you know, based on their talent. And actually, the hardest part was was to find that uh, the lyrics to that song that I quote. Because that there was no place to find that originally, and I had to really dig because I wanted to have the first words that were sung by, and I can't think of the actress's name right now. Uh, like Barbara any, Harris, famous. Yeah, she, she went on to Broadway and yep. and, yeah. and fame and yeah and everything. But yeah, that's a, again, it, it's filled with beautiful moments that I I really you know some of these things are just things that as being a long term resident, I think you should know or that are great to know or you know. Uh, so my goal was to have people who weren't familiar at all with Chicago could enjoy it. And people who love Chicago can find think, find more things to love about it. And Second City is incredible because, as you mentioned, I mean, you go all the way back to the early 60s, Alan Arkin and Joan Rivers, but it, it's never stopped. You know, the, you know, Belushi, of course, and that whole group all the way through the Tina Fey's and the Stephen Colbert's. And to this day, you know, it's obviously like the, the lead feeding uh, trough for uh, Saturday Night Live. But, you know, Second City also spawned, you know, the Canadian Second City, which was then SCTV with John Candy and right. Joe Flaherty and and Rick Moranis. So, you know, incredible legacy. And it's kind of cool. It's still in the same address, right? 1842 yeah, North still, still right there. I drove by the other day. I, I formed a theory writing this book, and I'm not knowledgeable enough. Maybe you can comment on this, but I think improv comedy came from Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. 
because that was improvised as well and everyone watched it and so it's sort of like the the, the people who would go on to second city grew up watching those puppets yeah. rip off each other and i thought you know it's sort of almost the same thing and, and uh, I, I watched a lot of those old videos and it's still very funny it was a very funny show yeah so for folks who don't know that was like one of the first like puppet shows on television right Right. It was, it was done to sell televisions. They really put it on the air so that, you know, parents might not want to splurge for themselves, but they sure would splurge for their kids. Huh. And so kids programs were sort of the the uh, starter drug for television. The, the first uh, electronic babysitter, which it is to this day, you know, now it's the iPad, but the same concept. Yeah, it's, it's, it's smaller and in your hand, but the concept's the same. Neil Steinberg is the author of Every Goddamn Day. Neil, thanks so much. Oh, we appreciate it. Good to talk to you. And we will talk soon, my friend. Thanks so much again to Neil Steinberg. The book is called Every Goddamn Day. It's fascinating reading. Going to take a quick break to hear from Rokan about Portillo's, and then we're going to talk about some of the new movies and streaming series coming your way. Let me tell you about our friends at Portillo's, the finest fast casual experience you're going to have in all of dining. Portillo's. You know, not just hot dogs. Well, you know, when it started in Chicago, people were like, oh, it's a hot dog shop. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. We got we got Italian beef? Wait. We got Italian sausage? Wait. You got chocolate cake? <laughs> oh, man. It's just uh, it's just one of the great experiences you can have. And I, I think I just said this a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. If you live somewhere where Portillo's is new, in California, Arizona, parts of Florida, check it out. Go. Have the chocolate cake. You get a little slice of home if you're from the Midwest, you're from Chicago, or you're from the East Coast too, because you know that that food will be very familiar to you as street food. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, ah, you know, am I going to, you know, it's going to be so heavy. It's not. Mm. And can I just tell you something? Mm. The best thing about Portillo's Mm. is that bun that they put the Italian beef on that you get now when you get that dipped and it gets all wet. Yeah. That is the perfect piece of bread. Mm-hmm. And, you know, carbs be damned. You can do it once a month. You're sure. not going to hurt anything. You'll be fine. Portillos.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S is how you spell that. Portillos.com. Find a store near you or order online. And you can get it anywhere in the United States of America. Portillos.com. Welcome back to the Richard Roper Show, the Richard Roper Podcast, brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios, as always. Uh, let's get right into it. Let's take a listen to a clip from Weird, the Al Yankovic story. I'm tired of people thinking I'm some kind of joke. Your dad and I agreed it would be best if you just stop being who you are and doing the things you love. My whole life. All I wanted. I'm afraid we found your son at a polka party. Just to make up new words to a song that already exists. Well, you should do that then. Who my little hungry one? Hungry one. Open up a package of my banana. Dude, I've got chills. Okay, so Daniel Radcliffe, you know from Harry Potter and a lot of other stuff, he's really developed into a a terrific and versatile actor, is playing Weird Al Yankovic. And I think most people know who Weird Al is. He's been doing for 30 years plus these parody songs. He takes the next My Sharona, and he turns it into My Bologna. He does another one, Bites the Dust, as another one, Rides the Bus, uh, Eat It for Beat It. 
very corny, very endearing. He's got the crazy hair, the oversized glasses, uh, the accordion. So now comes weird, the Al Yankovic story. And what they do here, and I'm telling you right off the bat, I'm giving it two and a half stars, which is a mild don't see it. It's close. It's I'm on the fence. What they do here is kind of a parody, which makes sense. If you're going to do a Weird Al film, it should be a parody, mostly a parody of films like Bohemian Rhapsody, the classic you know, uh, show business biopic where there's the rise to fame, the childhood flashbacks, and then they become intoxicated with success and there's a big fallout. And it's it's a clever idea, kind of like uh, Walk Hard or uh, something like um, uh, the first Austin Powers movie. But my problem is that they stretch it a little bit too thin and it gets into this whole weird uh, spy story with uh, Evan Rachel Wood playing Madonna. She's great, but the story just gets a little too thin. So I can't say I'm recommending that. I want to mention also quickly a movie called On the Line, where Mel Gibson plays a late night talk show host. All right, people, settle in, relax. Give me a call. This is On the Line. We're expecting your calls. Talk to Elvis live on air and tell him about all of your issues and problems. Okay, we got Gary on the line. What say you, Gary? <sighs> Gary, are you with us? I'm going to do something really screwed up tonight. Tell me calmly. Where exactly are you? I'm at your house. Honey. On the line, it's called. As someone who's done radio for 25 plus years, I can tell you this movie knows less about radio than me, me, any movie ever in the history of movies. On the line, Mel Gibson, he's the late night shock jock talk host. And then he likes to play practical jokes. And then people start playing practical jokes on him. Most of them are visual, so it makes no sense for radio. He swears all the time, even though it's commercial radio and you can't do that. He barely has commercial breaks. None, of, Nothing about this movie has anything to do with the real world and how radio works. Uh, it's called On the Line, Mel Gibson. It's terrible. Let's take a listen to a clip from Blockbuster on Netflix. Look, there's no easy way to say this. Seven more Blockbusters just closed. You're officially the last one on Earth. I uh, don't love the pattern that's starting to emerge. Hello? No one's going anywhere because everything is under control. That's reassuring. It's just act like one of your favorite bosses from a movie. Like Boss Baby or Devil's Advocate? One of those is a baby and one is Satan. And look at the heights they reach despite their circumstances. Hmm, fair. But to me, this focus, I think we're going to be okay. An eviction notice? I feel real bad about it. That's why I drew a sad face on it. Okay, Netflix is doing a sitcom about the last blockbuster in the world. Now think about that. Considering that Netflix pretty much put Blockbuster out of business, they could have called this Salt in the Wound. So this is a sitcom. Now, there is actually one Blockbuster, and there's a there's a documentary called The Last Blockbuster that talks about the last Blockbuster store, which is, in I think, in Oregon. And that's really, really interesting. And you can get that on Netflix. This is not that documentary. This is a sitcom just called Blockbuster set in a fictional Michigan strip mall where the last blockbuster is standing. Uh, Randall Park, who's terrific, stars as the guy who manages the store. There's a terrific cast here. A lot of uh, reliable veterans like J.B. Smoove and then some cool newcomers who have a lot of talent. But this is just a basic workplace comedy. They don't really do enough. A lot of pop culture inside jokes, but they don't really do enough with the kind of interesting conceit of being the last blockbuster store. It's very much in the vein of Parks and Rec and The Office and Superstore. 
and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and one of the creators of that fine sitcom is involved with this, uh, where there's the will they or won't they romance. And we've seen it all before, but done better. So it's okay, blockbuster on Netflix, but nothing you have to jump to. All right, let's get to the stuff that's much better. This is stuff that's uh, just arriving either in theaters or streaming. Causeway, you may have heard about this film. This is Jennifer Lawrence um, kind of returning to her indie roots. You know, you'll recall, you might recall, Jennifer Lawrence, before she won the Academy Award, before the Hunger Games, before the X-Men franchise, before becoming one of the biggest movie stars in the world, she got her roots really uh, as an indie star, you know, uh, doing films like uh, Winter's Bone, you know, one of, one of the best uh, performances to this day of her career. And she kind of returns to that. Hey, look, if it get dark now, you just ride it, okay? Yeah. Yeah. How do I do that? <laughs> All right. What's dark? Being back here. You don't got love for this city? the city. No, it is. Causeway is the story. She plays a young soldier who's home from Afghanistan, sustained a pretty serious injury, internal and external, uh, dealing with PTSD. She comes back home to New Orleans and her kind of where she had kind of a troubled childhood. And she strikes up a friendship with Brian Tyree Henry, who plays a local guy that runs a local auto repair shop. And you think, oh, is this going to be kind of a interesting romance it's it's more fascinating and more complex than that the friendship between the two is very realistic uh the ways in which uh jennifer's character deals with her ptsd with her mother with the problem involving her brother all very authentic this movie feels very lived in you believe these characters had lives before the movie and you believe they'll have lives after the movie and um it's it's low-key uh, but intense at times, it's called Causeway, and it's a really, really well-written, well-shot, and terrific performances, especially from Jennifer Lawrence and Brian Tyree Henry. Also now available is The White Lotus Season 2. Now, the first White Lotus kind of took me by surprise. I didn't, I didn't love it. I certainly didn't see it becoming such a huge hit and winning major awards, uh, but... I kind of get it, and I like the second season even better. I, I mean, this show is all about watching beautiful, rich people uh, living their beautiful, rich lives and learning that they're absolutely miserable, and that's the fun of that. And then there's murder thrown on top of that, you know, so it's a dark comedy. Welcome to the White Lotus in Sicily. La Dolce Vista. Now that he's loaded, you think he regrets marrying such a dud? What is going on with you? There's a reason they invited us here. It's like you sold your company, you got rich, and now he's your best friend. Are these the kind of people we're going to be hanging out with now? You bring your assistant to a vacation with your husband. It's not like she's going to be in our bed and stuff. I don't know what's going on with Greg. Uh, for season two, and, you know, they could do a different season and just go to a different, you know, White Lotus hotel, upscale hotel chain every year. This time around, they're in Sicily. Uh, it was actually filmed in Australia because I think they're having some problems uh, with COVID and other restrictions, but um, it looks amazing. That's for sure. Uh, and you got a whole new cast uh, other than Jennifer Coolidge, who's returning, but Aubrey Plaza, Theo James, 
F. Murray Abraham, Michael Imperioli, and remember from uh, from The Sopranos, Tom Hollander, a top-level cast. And as usual, there's kind of three storylines that are separate but then interconnect. There's a lot of sexual hijinks. There's a lot of uh, crazy, uh, hedonistic, over-the-top behavior. And then eventually there's murder. So I like The White Lotus Season 2. And also want to mention, as we talked about at the top of the show, The Crown Season 5 is here, folks, and we're moving closer. We're still in the 90s, but eventually we're going to get up right to present day. For years, I've called for a more modern monarchy that reflects the world outside. I don't think it's my behavior that's threatening its survival. You, as future king, have a duty. People will never understand how it's really been for me. I never stood a chance. She's at breaking point because of the way she feels she's been treated. They see her as a threat. I like The Crown Season 5 quite a bit. As usual, it's a fictionalized version of events. And as usual, they get some of the finest actors in the world, British and otherwise, to play these real-life characters. And once again, they've substituted actors. Uh, as the seasons go on and the decades go on, we've had Claire Foy playing Queen Elizabeth II. We've had Olivia Coleman. Now we get the great Imelda Staunton, three great actresses. Jonathan Price now takes over as Prince Philip. Dominic West is Prince Charles, which is kind of funny to me because uh, Josh O'Connor, who was so great playing Prince Charles in season three and four, and Dominic West is a terrific actor. But folks, look up Dominic West. That's an upgrade for Prince Chuck. Dominic West is leading man handsome. I also want to mention Elizabeth Debicki as Princess Diana. Emma Corrin was great as, as the young princess die. Uh, Elizabeth Debicki as the slightly older Princess Diana, even with all the great portrayals of Diana we've had, including Kristen Stewart recently, this might be the best one yet. She's got the mannerisms, the speech, and just the overall persona of Princess Diana. Really, really well done. Cast is terrific as always. The cinematography and the production design is incredible. You feel like you're really there at Windsor or when they go to Scotland or when we go to, you know, the streets of of, of England, whatever the case may be, of London. Uh, the Crown Season 5, listen, if you're into The Crown, you're going to love it. It's as simple as that. If you haven't seen the first four seasons, go back, binge the hell out of it, and then watch The Crown Season 5. All right, that's going to do it for The Richard Roper Show. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. Thanks to my special guest, Neil Steinberg. We'll talk soon.